My name is Simon Whitby-Brown. I am here today in discussion with the poet Sheen Breen to discuss his new work, Lilies on the Deathbed of a Tyne and Other Poems, published by Beobua Press. Um, so, I, a little bit about myself. I have a background in um, English literature, but I currently work in finance. Uh, I have an MA in, in English literature. Um, I've known Sheen Breen for some years now. Hi, Sam. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you again. Mm -hmm. uh, and I really am here because I wanted to get uh, a greater discussion about really what drove him to write this new work, as it is his second work. Um, and so that's why we're here today. So, uh, Ashim, what was your... Tell me something about your creative process. What was the drive to, to make you write this new, new uh, publication? Oh shit! Um, why? Why did I? Why did I write it? Um, I, I I wrote it because if I didn't, I would get depressed. Um, I I have a very mundane view, uh, perhaps mundane, perhaps not mundane, but a very 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 straight view on uh, creativity, which is that. Um, actually, I did a I did a podcast for uh, the Metal Worker uh, a couple of weeks ago, and. They said, "What advice would you give to young poets?" And my 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 answer was, um, mm -hmm. "Don't, uh, because if you do, you will add something to your life that will act like a canker in the wound. It'll always chase you. Um, you will feel depressed and full of despair if you don't actually consistently do it. So you have to do it because there's the, a the, the, the dog at your heels the entire time." And, um, but again, as well, uh, with the assembly of uh, a poetic collection, it's it, 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 to the person who reads it, they assume that, oh, this particular book was something that you decided you would establish, but it isn't. Yeah. It's a collection of work that you felt worked and fit together, that you assembled, and dear God, you wanted it published, and you found someone who kind of shared the same vision, and you created something together. But, sure. Yeah. So, uh, are you saying creativity is an albatross, or...? <laughs> yes, I shot the albatross. Uh, thank you. Uh, yes, I, I go on albatross killing sprees. No, um, creativity is not an albatross, uh, but it is something that hangs around your neck, uh, definitely, because once it becomes something that you have to do, you can't escape it. Yeah. Um, so it is beautiful, it is wonderful, it is inspiring, it is invigorating, but it is also painful. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, very much so. I think this being your second sort of uh, publication, um, you're coming from almost having to navigate uh, that sense of why you're doing this uh, beforehand. So how would you say, um, in some ways you've grown as an author, how would you say that this particular collection embodies you? Um, and uh, possibly a more developed viewpoint that you may have achieved. Yeah, no, that, that, that's brilliant. Um, I would highlight what I said uh, a minute ago, which is that um, the work as it is is always a few years behind. It's one of the funny things, any uh, a musician, an author, we all share the same thing, which is that we have to, when we talk about publicizing, we talk about discussing our work. It's always like two to three years behind what we're actually doing right um so what i allowed now publicly 
privately I look at and I go, oh, there's room for improvement. Um, in that book, I mean, like the, the blunt statement is, do I think this book is better than my first book? Uh, the answer to that is yes. Um, is it because I no longer or disregard my first book? Absolutely not. Um, but it's because I had time, extra years, to practice the craft, to practice the work, to work on it, to develop, to to learn, to learn new tricks, to, to learn new places, to learn things I did wrong, things I did right, to overuse. But then again, what I'm working on now, I feel, does things that are in that book, in this book, that I that I adore. I feel the work I'm working on now is a thousand times better again. So it's so always a time like a greater sense of maturity or a more concerned yeah, world with you. Both. Both. Fantastic. I mean, I think it does really come across in this work um, from what I've read of it, which is not the whole thing, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but, you know, that would take away from, from the end. I've read the entire thing by this stage. Um, I mean, just before you talk about this, do be yeah. frank with, uh, by the way, to, to thank you to all the listeners, but do, do be frank uh, that you occasionally do have issues with my work. <laughs> um it's better that we have that on the table as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, my taste in poetry, I mean, you've known me from, mm. from, for, you know, over a decade. And my taste in poetry has often uh, been, it's deviated very little. Mm. So I have, I sort of champion um, short form mm -hmm. and clarity. Um, and I look at, say, modernist works or postmodernist works. And if even if you look at something like Lydia Davis and her flash fiction, I see qualities in that which are different to your work because your work is a lot more long form. Yeah, um, <coughs> you're not shy of words, and you're, <laughs> you're not shy of jumbling up to jumbling them up together no. to draw sense. So, uh, tell me something more about um, your process of writing and how how you feel. Um, that a message is, is, is delivered through through your work. Oh, well, okay, so those are two questions. Hmm. Uh, question one, what's my process of writing? Then I have a, a, a very stock standard answer to. Um, yeah. I don't mean to sound glib, um, but I have four. Hmm. Um, process one uh, is uh, what I call still life. Uh, it's pretty simple. It's um, Occasionally an idea or a concept or a thought or just a conversation with a friend. Um, there's a poem in there uh, near the end. Uh, which one is it? Uh, the Body Crop of Aaron Moore. Mm -hmm. uh, which comes from a conversation with a good friend of mine um, uh, about migration and Donny Gaul and the, the, well, to be honest with you, the horrors of the legacy of empire and uh, the, the poverty that that, that forced. Um, what that was, was I discussed, I found this germ of an idea and then I researched the fuck out of it. Yeah. I, I went through it line by line in my head. I came up with ideas. I made sure everything was accurate. I actually spoke to several people in Donegal to, to really nail it tight. Um, the best compliment that poem received was uh, from someone from Donegal. He said it, 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 it was yeah. Their, their childhood and it, it felt to them like it was written by someone from Donegal so that's 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 version one is deep heavy academic research um, extremely boring mundane research for sit like probably days uh, and then writing it and working off all my material um, process two is to do with something I call riffings which is I keep a document uh, 
always with me. That is a combination of things I cut out of older works, even sure. though I loved them, Killing Your Darlings, and then I yeah. use them in collage, make a bricolage of, of, of meaning. Um, versus three is the, uh, the long-form works, which are usually uh, a general idea, a general music concept. And I play with base elements of them for weeks and then suddenly something comes to fruition and the very last one uh, is something that's only happened to me twice and makes me sound like an absolute idiot but uh, two things I've written have come to me fully formed in a dream and I have woken up with a dictaphone beside my bed, taken out the dictaphone and fall asleep while occasionally when you listen to me playing them back I literally half fall asleep while I'm dictaphoning um reading them back and then eventually editing and writing sure. your second question though yeah was um god what was your second question it was about my creative process was it about why i do it or should we just move on well uh i think i, I mean in some ways yeah yeah possibly it's safer to move on because i think you, you made an interesting uh, comment there i i see in your work that the sense of identity pervades uh, the entire text, or at least all of the poems. And in that sense, I've always felt there are, there are two uh, particular things at work here. One, I find, is your sense of uh, self. Mm. But I think it's most important, really, to discuss um, your sense of, of Irishness, of mm. Irish identity so national identity within the world yeah. and then we can look at how you feel you fit within that because i think those two things are working together in, in some senses uh, you know they're quite they're quite interconnected mm. obviously so uh, tell me a little bit more because this is this is very irish in, in, in some <laughs> yeah, senses yeah. right yeah so so tell me something about that because i think it really would help um us have a, a sort of greater understanding from from the poet's point of view from the author's point of view uh, about uh, your choice of words and, and why so many are used, which is an excellent thing. <laughs> so, tell me something about the sense of Irish national identity and, and yeah. the, uh, no, Irishness. Uh, I think that's that, that's a wonderful question. Um, I should say at this point, uh, by the by, that this uh, interview is being conducted in my kitchen um, <laughs> on Leith Walk in Edinburgh, and uh, yeah, there's a pleasure to the homeliness of it. Uh, Simon and I have spent many. Uh, Many hours chatting and also at times singing um, <laughs> in, in this kitchen. Um, as to, to the sense of Irishness, um, yeah, I spoke to a friend of mine, uh, Paul Thompson, who uh, completely unbidden uh, wrote a stunning review of this collection um, two or three weeks ago. Uh, what he said to me was, uh, and what he actually contained in his review as well, was he said this was the best collection um, uh, that he's read of what he has now come to realize is the best Irish writer writing in English. And it took me a little while to digest that because at first, I mean, it's ridiculously heady praise no matter what and kind of makes you kind of go, uh, that's a little bit much, honey. Um, there are a lot more people who've served a lot more time and done a lot more over their years. Um, yeah. What I got from him when I back and forth with him was a bit more, and actually even some work colleagues uh, read the review and brought this up, what the hell did he mean? Um, 
And what I got from what he meant was that there were two types of Irish writers writing in English. Yeah. Um, there were the Irish writers who write in English who, to be honest, uh, that when you talk about uh, writing, yeah. uh, no disrespect intended, it's, it's, it's as an Englishman, you like tightness, you like control, yeah. you like balance, you like discipline. I even felt that when I used the term Irishness instead of, you know, <laughs> right. that made me very... Yeah, no, but that's exactly what he was talking about. Yeah. He was talking about uh, of the Irish who did not um, adapt themselves, well, to be frank, post-famine, it's a, it's a split in society, mm -hmm. uh, to speaking English like an English person. Yeah. I don't write like an English person writing. I write like an Irish person writing in English. And that's what he meant. Yeah. It's still 99.9% .9 far too heady praise, but yeah. that's what he meant. So how does it feel to, so, so yeah. just backtrack. Um, yeah. How does it feel to be an Irish person writing in this language or? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that's really what I was going for. So that's the second half now in, we've, we've looked at that and I think you bring up a very interesting point there um, about the need for some of the Irish to to, to to speak more with a, with an English sense so that they can be understood by the English and, and that sort of difference mm. there um, it does bring me on to the second half so I'm just looking at the, the love song of Anna Ruhr for example and in uh, I'm going to call it section five to be correct I think there is a stanza in here that is very interesting. And, you know, you say, uh, then my loving artistry and craft, all meanings which are of myself constituent, none are more than this, a fantasy with, which with canny zeal has stoked the fires inside me. So I guess taking that, tell me something more uh, in the work about how yourself comes in the work, your sense of yourself, your your, your personal feelings, and um, yeah, something something about that and how, how that works within mm. within the work. Because mm. I think they're deeply entrenched with each other. This sense of Irish identity and 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 yourself and widening that for others. Great question. Um, my answer is going to be um, odd. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't believe in a sense of self in the classical fashion. Right, interesting. Well, this is it. Um, I Okay, so as human beings, um, we all share this. I think this is a universal thing. And I actually, when I say I don't believe, I think I have a, a, a viewpoint that is universal on this. It's just right. I don't think it's very well expressed. Um, hopefully, I'll express it reasonably. Um, as human beings, we all... Um, what I've been racking my brains about is a very particular nursery rhyme. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember hearing this thing saying, but rules can never be broken. Sure. And in my brain, that's part of sticks and stones, but it isn't because sticks and stones will break my bones, but you know, holes will never hurt me. But I hear this whole rules will never be broken, which feels like a seminal moment. And there are countless others. There's uh, several, like probably at least 12 moments from when I was four, and about three or four of them feel like they're integral to be Karl Marxian about it, to my spirit being. <laughs> right, okay. Um, so again, when I'm 11, 13, 15, yeah. 16, 18, 20, 25. I mean, in a sense, tell me about some of those moments and how they shaped 
you and your writings. Upright. Hold that question. Let me finish this one. <laughs> okay. Hold that question. I'm just putting it in. I'm just. No, I love that, uh, and I, I really would love to. But this, I, wa- I want to. I want to finish this point because otherwise uh, we'll lose our tangent, um, lose our kernel of thought. But um, when it comes to these memories, I think certain ones of them kind of almost seed what it is to be in I. And they become reference points. So in periods of sadness and in periods of trauma, in periods of growth, in periods of joy, periods of love, we refer to these parts of ourselves and they negotiate with us. Not only that, but they communicate with us. If I ask any person to name one of these kernel moments, and then if I ask them to immediately afterwards say, what does that kernel moment you think about you? They know exactly how they talk. Not only do they know how they talk, to be frank, they actually talk. And I don't see individuality, I mean, I'm a big individualist, Mm. but I don't see individuality as singular. I see it as a a community, a community of iterations of what I have been, what I'm going to become, what I hope, what I dream, what I lose. And I see that as a constant conversation. We are multiplicities. And to deny that is to try to make yourself stagnant. And I actually feel that's a big problem with contemporary discourse about selfhood and about the state of us and possibly leading to a lot more. We are not singular. We are multiple individuals. So when it comes to my work, and Anna Rua is a brilliant example because throughout that poem, it consistently refers to multiplicities of two lovers. They are not singular and throughout most of my long form poetry actually time is something I play with uh, at the end of my first book um, the entire temporal situation is reversed I use the future tense to talk about the past and the present and it, yeah I don't I think we live in linear time in the sense that we grow old and we die and, and this happens but I don't think we live in linear time in the sense I, I, I say live as in experience yeah. well, we yeah, live throughout time yeah because our minds themselves are not Linear. Exactly. You know, we play with time. Um, I think you know there's a rawness to this work, and I'm actually glad that you address that um, because I think it helps me have a greater understanding, but might also help uh, our audience to have a wider understanding of of your work and and why it's written in the way it is. Because to hark back to something I said earlier on, my taste in poetry being fairly different. Yeah. To yours, um, I think that the the that discussion around temporality and how our own minds don't work in a temporal sense uh, a memory doesn't no and if we don't have memory then what do we have because one cannot we we bingo but we would be blank bingo you know we'd be a blank slate every day that we woke up in, in, in some ways if no, i can we, take that and run with it for a second absolutely. um so I'm not going to go massively into it because yeah, sure. uh, I've, I've done so elsewhere. If, if anyone cares to, to dig in, you know, Christ, they probably won't. But you know, maybe in a hundred years, uh, if I'm lucky, touch wood. But like in the in the first poem, which is inspired by, as, as I've said elsewhere, the, the death of a friend, my my oldest friend's mother, mm-hmm. and how he dealt with it, and how when I saw him in that situation, it it, it he was brilliant, and then. The moment the committal, when the second curtain pulled, his his heart broke, and I use the word "God struck" uh, because that's the word that came to me at the time, and it just it it it, it, it blew me away. Having that, 
having that multi-temporality didn't feel like a choice. It felt like something that had to be because it's just what human experience yeah. is. Yeah, and I think, you know, that dealing with death is an interesting one. You know, there's a stanza here where you say, but it is beyond me and it's winter now and you, the young, must leave the old bereft. Oh, it felt like And that is something that I think dealing with loss um, in, in a... I lost a line after that about a russet of, yeah. russet of seeds, russet of leaves. Yeah. Yeah. There's a wonderful line after that that's one of my favorite in the whole book. But yeah. And now we have, you know. Oh, okay. don't worry about it. So this then is the mulch, the one true elegy to the. Oh, there's something about a litany of left behind apricots, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Oh, well. It, you know, I think it's how we deal with, with loss and it's how we deal with a, a wider understanding of ourselves after we've experienced that. And. Um, I keep using the term rawness when I'm when I'm mm. looking at this work, but oh, I, love it. I think you know it's something we have to we have to lay bare because if I had a criticism of your work, um, which I've often said to you is that I often find it inaccessible, mm-hmm. but I don't truly believe it is. I think it requires um, uh, it, it requires. A hand to understand it in some senses. Oh, if, if your purpose is understanding, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I I would come down on the academic side that you don't actually have to understand poetry at all. That's not the yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. Um, point is the sound, the music, and an impression mm. um, that you read it. I mean, come on, like how many people today, from like I don't know slums to the richest places in the world, say the following two things? How many of them a say? Um, ever tried, ever failed, try again, fail better, and how many of them say, you know, um, though we are not that strength we once were, whatever will be we were, you know, one stout something, you know, the Tennyson line. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tennyson and Beckett are hugely influential when you think about their lines in terms of not poetry, not pop culture, not just literal human consciousness. Christ, Google stole their entire M.O., Mm-hmm. Aside from Dump Evil, which they then, to be fair to them, they actually correctly scrapped. Because, um, right. you know, they are partly evil and they admitted it. Um, but how many people are deeply influenced by Tennyson, deeply influenced by Coleridge, yeah. deeply influenced by Beckett? And oddly enough, often unknowingly so. Yeah. Because their work pervades. Also, amount. Beckett is notoriously impenetrable. Yeah. I mean, people criticise Joyce for being impenetrable, and he's a hard read. Yeah, I would agree. I, I uh, once threw Ulysses in the swimming pool with my mm. because I. But have you ever read Beckett's trilogy in full, front to back? I have not. Have not. No. It's 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 one of those books that, um, like Berlin Alexanderplatz, where you uh, start to read it. I definitely wrestled with the. Yeah. With that, but but it was. Yeah, anyway, but no, but but at the, the end of the Beckett, uh, Beckett's work, you feel astounded. Mm. I mean, like the conclusion of the Beckett trilogy, the um, oh Christ, you know. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but if, you know, I can't go on, I won't go on. I can't, but I must, but I yeah. can't, but I do. And but the, the fact that it ends with I go on, I go on, I go on, it's just superb. Absolutely superb the way it goes. Um, so. I mean, one of, one of the things that I really did want to talk to you about, because I've heard you perform live, um, I've 
uh, been there for, for, for a lot of these. And I think that there is a deep musicality to your work. Yeah. I also think the music, and this is an obvious statement, but music is deeply entrenched within Irish culture yeah. as uh, a way of communication, a way of learning. Yeah. Um, how, how important do you feel uh, music has been to, to your writing of this work? Wonderful. Uh, on Irish culture, uh, there's a, a great little um, nugget which is that uh, in the, the Wolf Tone Rebellion, in the 1798 Rebellion, mm. um, one of the ways the orders were passed uh, from town to town as we all, um, as we all, well, fought, uh, was through drunks in towns. Uh, the drunks right. would sing all traditional songs, but they'd vary certain lines. And it was in the variation of those lines yeah. that we communicated troop movements. Um, and the British were never going to figure it out. And it was wonderful. Um, how important is musicality to me? I think it's literally 100% the most important thing. Yeah. Um, I don't mean as a lot of people nowadays mean. And, and I think it's an absolute tragedy when people talk about poetry now, they think, you go to a poetry night, it's spoken word voice. So it's yeah. a guy and a girl, they get together like on stage, one after the other. They're usually slim, 28, pretty. One out of the five of them has dreadlocks. One out of the five of them has short hair. Mm -hmm. But they all speak the same way. It's all like, um, bang, stop. It was the moment in the night that I took fright, but here it was, a caterwauling notion as I took motion. Here it was with speed, with haste, with, oh my God, with alacrity, I found myself finding perspicacity oh being what is it to be i it's this constant yeah, notion that rhyme and pace mm. and rhythm equate to poetry yeah which isn't and true and that's i think that's what really shows that's yeah. where musicality matters because they have the basis of musicality poetry is unfortunately so much split between people who can't perform and they read out of their books like little monotone and i feel so bad because there are some wonderful writers who can't perform and today yeah. you have to perform to sell and then there are so many people who can perform but can't write yeah. and could write if they'd stop if the praise that they got i mean i was praised at 16 20 21 23 is oh you're so natural but you have to fuck, you have to work your balls off on craft yeah. and the performers don't and the ones who work on craft can't perform and it's a huge problem um so for me musicality though is something different it's when you're reading it on the page uh when i edit for example uh near the my maybe my like second last or third last edit um i would go and always read it out loud and if there's something that i jar on that i when reading it yeah fail to do um then i cut to, it yeah you can cut it and you, and you sort of reassess so, it. i mean i think you know uh, we're at a stage now where we're, we're almost coming to the end about no 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 we not? So, um, when it comes to actual music in general, yeah. whew, having the space to give words sound, having the grace to give words sound, yeah. is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to writing for music what it really what, 
What really matters is, and I don't just mean putting the right word in order with the next one. Yeah. What I mean is that when you actually literally read something, it creates an image in your head that lingers, and that's 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 musicality. Blue notes exist in jazz, in in in, in Charlie and the Bird, in, in in I love Mingus. Blues, many many scales. It, you love blues, blues. Yeah, so. but when Mingus hits those like mm -hmm. assonant notes, those like mm -hmm. like in uh, what's it uh, the, the the Black Lady and the Sinner Christ, or what's the name of that album? Oh God, uh, it's it's his best album, and it's so assonant. Mm -hmm. But in that assonance, he finds shape. Yeah. And I think that a good poet, and I hope I do this, yeah. should see things dimensionally as well as in words, and they should look to find that shape. Yeah, I'm in full agreement with you. There. I'm in. I'm in full agreement with you. I think that's the entire one of the strongest focuses of poetry nowadays. One of the things that. Um, you have a responsibility to do yeah. as a poet is to be able to present that to people because that's why people read yeah. that's why people still buy books that's, that's one of the, the most important things is, is to develop themselves in some ways um, I mean, can I cut you there for one second yeah. just on um why people read and, and what the value of, of art is, is something that I get uppity about. Right. Uppity is probably the right word. Um, <laughs> well, you're about to get uppity. <laughs> um, I suppose, how would I put it? Um, Six months toil for a kiss. Oh, oh come on! Hit me! Hit me! What's what, what's got you? <laughs> Nothing. I was just uh, reading a section here. Six months toil for a kiss, and it uh, it amused me. It's, uh, just before you were going to get up to that's all. Because <laughs> I mean, poetry and, and writing in general can be a fairly lonely profession. It, it's a very different um, way of thinking that one needs to have in order to be a writer in the first place. Don't you feel? Yeah, there's a, there's a heightened sense of one's surroundings and people's interactions. Yeah, I suppose when you're a teenager, you have that whole beatnik sensibility, you know. <laughs> oh, we, being we, we, a writer is <laughs> nothing but fun and sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's just uh, sex, drugs, and prose. Um, I suppose to a degree, being a writer, you know, at different points in your life is sex, drugs, and prose. Um, <laughs> You know, um, I can't think of a great writer who did not have a reasonably large amount of sex, so probably an amount of drugs and certainly a large amount of prose. But, yeah, there's a lot of it is just sitting alone, um, I guess working. Yeah, is there a need within you to write? Obviously there is. Yeah. Um, and I guess, and it could have been a question at the beginning, to be honest, but I'll ask it now. Uh, what drives that? Yeah, the only answer to that is the most... <laughs> Well, I hate using the word pretentious because it's a complete incorrect usage. The meaning, obviously, of pretentious being, you know, speaking with pretense yes. without knowledge. Um, but contemporary society is now, you know, I suppose, um, press gang the word pretentious to mean a highfalutin. Um, yeah. So the highfalutin answer is to create 
or to try to create moments of perfect beauty. Sure. Um, and yeah, I know that's uh, somewhat of a masturbatory sentence, but that is the purpose. That is why I do it, is yeah. that very occasionally I get, let's put it in what we were just talking about, very occasionally I get the blue notes. Yeah, this is it. And that's what I want. And how I want blue notes. How you navigate those as well. How you navigate those and how you present them, I think, is incredibly important. Christ, yeah. So, 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 so much. Yeah. My God, it's... Mm. It's vital. So, yeah. I don't know. But this has been... Uh, it's been a wonderful experience. I mean, I have to... If you don't mind, I have to sure. shout out the publisher, Bearboo Press. Uh, okay. Michelle is... Well, she's quite remarkable in what she's done. Um, mm. Poetry was vital to her at a very personal moment that happened to her quite recently, within right. the last 10 years. Um, and in the last couple of years, she did like in the last four or five years, she went, I'm going to celebrate that. But what she, what she did was... Um, she created a press, okay. I mean, already that's laudable. Mm -hmm. But she created a press and then went on a two-year spree, uh, hopefully including me, mm -hmm. um, of picking extraordinarily interesting work. Yeah. Um, I've picked up a couple of the books from Beverly myself just, just mm -hmm. for the hell of it. Um, one was a mathematical study of art. Um, you know, some are just really tight poetry. She's got a real eye for the avant-garde, and she's yeah. done... Her list is more interesting than most presses list for the last 20 years. Yeah. And she's done it in two or three, so... So it's a bold statement, but she's in some senses breaking a mold, or at least going against the green. Another sort of... It sounds like a cliche, but I think it is probably the most fitting way uh, to address that. And, uh, you know, I think uh, there's a real need... Uh, for that within literature, be it poetry or, or, or other forms, but poetry can often be perhaps one of the most engaging and most direct ways to broaden minds and really... Um, Absolutely. So um, what I was going to say before we got uh, yeah. onto the tangent, yeah, um, <laughs> oh, come on, um, was it's personal thought of mine is that we have, okay, so if we go back to, uh, let's say, painting before photography. Mm -hmm. Painting before photography uh, was often about representation. Yeah, sure. Mimesis. Um, you know, uh, photography before cinema was often about mimesis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course. Uh, then cinema oh. takes over of the branch of best representative. But we still have photography. Yeah. We still have millionaire photographers we still have millionaire painters um, there's a, a wonderful story that if you uh, look into um, Grecian sculpture around uh, 500 BC yeah um, every generation pursued um, a better representation of the human form yeah. um, how to better understand and this is before you know Dissection, I think, before dissection as a means of understanding. Um, and then there was a cross trade um, during one of the wars in the uh, Pharaonic era that had a lot of uh, Greek craftsmen go to uh, contemporary Egypt. Uh, well, not contemporary, uh, then. Then yeah, contemporary Egypt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they learned a couple based on the Egyptian way of writing. 
um, painting and just the whole Egyptian concept. They learned ways which, when combined with their own skill, allowed them, for the time, perfect representations of the body. Mm. So they spent 500 years trying to find a way to map the body. Right. And then they spent 50 years doing it. Mm -hmm. And then they went into hyper-reality. And they yeah. stopped direct representation and started instead to just create meanings that were more representative. The magic yeah. realist. I mean, that's a big thing in Irish writing. That's Absolutely. a big thing well, in South American is, writing. That's what I was going to say. It's a big thing in your poetry, actually. Oh, yeah. That's the whole point. You know? uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's a big thing in, in most of the writers I admire as well, is uh, the, the idea that, and in Guy Debord, the philosopher, the, the idea that hyper-real is a better representative of the real because in our own consciousness and in our own states, mm -hmm. it is not mundane. It's not Rossellian reference. Yeah, um, it's connotation, it's play, it's interrelation. So my, I want to frame this in a sense for very briefly to put a question to you. Yeah. Um, I have my own answer, but I want to ask you: um, What if we accept that every medium, so that's poetry, photography, cinema, yada yada, yeah. uh, what is it that poetry as a medium? including music, Certainly. is better at than any other medium. Poetry, at least for me, I've always really enjoyed poetry and, and the type of poetry I like because I think it allows a discipline of one sort. It's a pared down um, expression on a page of somebody's feelings or something that somebody sees. It allows you then to have a clearer viewpoint or a clearer focus for uh, your perspective on things, your emotions, uh, and I've I've always found it one of one of the best um, vessels, I suppose, yeah. or machines for doing that, which uh, you know, kind of I wouldn't say it elevates it necessarily because it's just different. But unlike short short stories mm. or flash fiction or or things like that, it it. Uh, it allows you to focus your own mind. It can give you discipline. And I think because poetry uh, has often been pushed aside in favour of uh, other forms of work or things that people yeah. find more um, approachable, especially if we look at you know, a curriculum system mm -hmm. uh, in schools and things like this, uh, I think the importance of poetry has been marginalised and it's important to bring it back into the forefront a bit more and not just have the same poems. Uh, every, every year at GCSE, <laughs> which, absolutely. You know, there are so many works um, that, that that fall by the wayside that should be given more focus. So that's why I've always felt poetry is incredibly okay. important. Um, I have, uh, I think, because we really are drawing to a close now. Yeah. I do have uh, one last uh, question for you. So one of the poems towards the end um, at swim, two pair, is uh, I think as you say yourself. It details a group of uh, psychologically traumatized ducks. Um, my question to you is, uh, which duck are you, machine? <laughs> I will. Uh, I'll counter to you, dear chap. Um, that uh, that's my, that, that poem is what allowed me to realise you you have a fear of pikes. Uh, <laughs> beasts. Yeah. Beasts of. Um, when you were talking about poetry having that ability to crystallize thought um i do think as well though um poetry is also better not 
better. It is best because it fills a medium. Prose mm. can do something cinema can't. Mm. Prose creates worlds inside you. I mean, much as we all love Fellowship of the Ring, for example, as a movie, yeah. uh, the other is grand, but it creates a blooming world inside you, and it's wonderful. And music creates sense in you. It's in the body, it's in the hips, it's in the bones, and it's beautiful. Poetry addresses something we don't really even have a word for, which is that space between what we tangibly identify and what we feel. Mm -hmm. It is in when the mind shakes. We have the body for rhythm and we have the mind for thought. Mm -hmm. But between that, there is a moment where thought dances. Um, yeah. Poetry addresses that in a way that no other medium can. Yeah, and something I find infuriating you mentioned the word accessibility and thankfully uh, I'm so glad that you and, and recently I'm really glad that a lot of the reviewers are starting to go hang on a minute Ashin's writing is actually accessible yeah. um, for my first book which I still think was accessible they 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 were iffy on it but I know that I for example performed parts of my first book in front of a blues gig between two blues bands and got an ovation it's the concept of accessibility, I think, insults people, especially the working class. It says, oh, you oiks don't get to understand unless we say it in normal words involving burgers and chips, mm -hmm. rather than actually saying anyone can understand anything if they just want to. Yeah. Because we're all, yeah, some people are super smart, some people aren't, but we can all understand the beauty of a leaf. Yeah. Um, yeah. So poetry addresses a vital part of the human spirit and the fact that we're not living in an age that respects that as much as i think it should mm -hmm. is i think <sighs> exemplary of the things we need to fix yeah i agree i mean that's what we're saying with um but onto the the the, the ducks and mm -hmm. the pike um <laughs> honestly that's just a piece of ecrasis um ecrasis uh i saw a picture i saw it on a wall and it was two ducks and something i do try to do with my work is to look at something that has been said before mm -hmm. and go okay and then try and find what hasn't been said about it and people write about birds all the time i'm a poet of course i write about birds all poets write about birds you have to <laughs> it's just it's just poets have bird poems mm -hmm. uh, there's two in this book poets have to have bird poems it's an unwritten rule um but what nobody thinks about when they see a family of ducklings mm -hmm. is that a mother duck produces, I don't know, what, like 12, 13 ducks. Yeah. And normally at the end of summer, when we're getting into autumn, there's a mother duck and two ducks. Mm -hmm. So 10 ducks on average, pair mother duck, die. And they die horribly. Mm -hmm. One of them or two of them usually get eaten out as little pieces of goo from the egg. They just die. Pike catch them. Eat. Yeah. And just talking about the trauma, because don't tell me that these animals don't feel trauma. I've seen it. Um, I wrote a poem a while back called Mourning, where I literally watched gulls mourn. And that was a, one of the few times, mostly my poetry is not true. That was one of the few times I wrote an absolutely truthful piece. Um, because I watched two gulls mourn, and it was horrifying. So I think it's important to show, and I suppose that's what we're talking about, a hyper-reality and magic realism. 
I think that shows truth more than representation. It's like yeah. uh, in A Hundred Years of Solitude when the blood runs around corners. Yeah, sure. Yeah. There's the real human truth is not in accuracy mm-hmm. to reality, it's in accuracy to the soul. And I think that a poet who doesn't try to do that is failing. And I think when you talk of the accuracy to the soul, it does remind me of at Swim Two Pair. Now I'm going to deal a couple of lines um, but really it's when you're talking about water and I mainly saw this on a river but it could be anywhere um, but it's when you say and the water around them weaves eddies um, a nest of spent influences and serried trails a platform for ambitions that span millennia and mm-hmm. I think that's us all isn't it really and even if we look at hyperrealism, it is the most honest portrayal of what we all really are as as people so yeah, it is accessible, especially if you pull it apart, which it should be done. So. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, thank you. It's been wonderful to yes. have this discussion with you. So that was a, a discussion with Ashim Breed on uh, Lilies on the Deathbed of a Time and Other Poems. Thank you, everybody else, for listening to us uh, talking away here. It's been a wonderful experience. It is indeed. Goodbye, all. Goodbye. <laughs>